You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to another breakfast show. Uh, you are joined by myself, Tukir Ahmed, and uh, Imam uh, Jalis Khan here in the studio of Voice of Islam. Um, and we, as always, we have a packed show for our listeners. Um, and as you know, the agenda of the show, the first 30 minutes to 20 minutes, we like to run down with some of the main news which is happening around the world and what is happening within the community. Um, and then after that, we go into some of our main segments. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at Interfaith Week. Um, and uh, for this, uh, we're going to be having uh, two guests on as well. We'll be listening to Sabia, who is a Muslim chaplain at University Rahampton University, London. So we'll be listening to uh, Miss Sabia Iqbal. And uh, we'll, we'll also be listening to Philomena Clifford, who is an active member of the Baha'i Faith and also a Cromwell Faith Forum. So uh, I had uh, the chance to interview her over the week. So we're going to be listening to her interview as well. And uh, for the second segment, we're going to be looking at empty classrooms revealed the long shadow of COVID. So in this segment, we'll be looking at some of the effects as well of uh, of COVID, uh, you know, what it's had on uh, classrooms. And for this, we have Dr. Jenny uh, Driss Cole, uh, who is a program director and MA International Child Rights and Development. So we're going to be listening to her. So that is the the agenda for the show. Um, It's quite interesting that we've got Interfaith Week, which is taking place, uh, which we're covering this week as well. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, even within the community, we have been actively taking part in uh, in the Interfaith Week as well. And just uh, yesterday in in Battersea, they they held a an event with Interfaith Week as well and there was a lot of guests that did come as well to attend the event. Um, <clears throat> I know I, I did get a chance to interview one of the guests as well. So I, I had the chance to um, interview Claire Kelland, um, you know, who who works with the um, Metropolitan Police um, and she's very active within her region, so um, she came on as well. She delivered a beautiful speech, um, so I had a chance to interview her as well um, in this. And uh, everyone, uh, you know, was highlighting that how important it is that, especially in uh, the time we're living in, how important it is for different faiths to come together uh, in solidarity and uh, you know stand up for justice. Um, especially in this uh, particular time. Um, and uh, we, we had uh, Imam Mansur Clark on as well, and he gave a beautiful speech on uh, on justice as well, and how, firstly, it should be adopted within our homes. Um, you know, for us to move in the wider society first, we must start in our homes and uh, then, you know, move our way um, uh, to, to a bigger sphere where, you know, where... Uh, where our voices are heard. So, uh, Jalees, if you can uh, just start off with the weather this morning, if you could just uh, give us the forecast of how it's looking, and uh, just uh, yeah, just give us a rundown of uh, some of the news. Absolutely. 
if we go towards the newspapers and read the headlines, we see we see that the the daily the Daily Telegraph have written. Um, their headline is that former Home Secretary Suella Braverman, whose sacking has featured prominently in this news this week, continues to dominate many of Friday's front pages. The Daily Telegraph has a story on Miss Braverman's plan to get Rwanda flights off the ground. It runs her plans in her full inside paper. The front page also features a photo of David Cameron, who is the new Foreign Secretary. We see The Guardian reports that 60 senior female staff have written a letter alleging sexual assault and harassment from male colleagues at the Ministry of Defence. A statement from the Ministry of Defence inside paper says that it's deeply concerned by the complaints and is taking action to tackle the issues raised. The Metro leads on senior officer admitting police let down Gracie Spinks, a 23-year-old woman, who was stabbed to death by her stalker. The Times has a story on government proposals to strip some benefit claimants who refuse to look for a job or undertake work experience of their right to free NHS prescriptions, dental care and help with energy bills for a period of time. It also reports on how Chancellor Jamie, uh, Jeremy Hunt has admitted that ministers can give no guarantee that deportation flights to Rwanda will take off before the next election. The Mirror has a story about the possibility of Christine Keeler being cleared of perjury due to new evidence. Keeler was a model who found herself at the centre of an affair that rocked the British establishment in the 1960s. Uh, the Express reports on MPs demanding that protests who trample over the sacred memory of our war dead be charged. It comes after photos emerged of pro-Palestine activists climbing on the Royal Artillery Memorial in Hyde Park. Uh, in the Financial Times, um, Chancellor Jamie Hunt is considering announcing plans to cut inher inheritance taxes in the autumn statement. It also has a story on Mars, that's the chocolate brand, um, buying ailing chocolate business Hotel Chocolat for £534 million. The Sun uh, leads with a story about a police force warning staff that using the word policeman could be breaking the law. And this is under the headline of It's PC Gone Mad. Hmm. The Daily Mail has a headline claiming unelected lords plot to block Rwanda law that could end scenes like this. And there's photos of um, immigrants or migrants um, escaping their country on a boat sorts. If we go further on, we see... Oh, well, I think it's time to move on to the weather. Um, I'll quickly run through the weather. Um, so today, a chilly start with early mist and fog for Northern Ireland and Scotland today. A few showers in the west, otherwise largely dry and bright. Cloudy, wet and windy across the southwest by evening. <clears throat> Uh, as for tonight, clear spells in the north and east to start, but turning cloudy, wet and windy for all as a band of showerly rain spreads in the southwest overnight. It will be drier in, the, uh, in Northern Ireland by dawn. As for Saturday, spells of rain spreading in from the west through tomorrow, and this will clear to leave most with patchy cloud and bright spells in the afternoon. 
with showers in the north and west, milder but windy. And for Sunday to Tuesday, Sunday and Monday will continue similarly with variable cloud amounts and showers, these more frequent in the north and west, staying windy, especially in the southwest. And Tuesday will be a drier, most settled day. There will be a mix of variable cloud cover and bright spells with just a few spots of rain in places. Fantastic. How, how's the winter weather like in uh, in Scotland? You've, I've never experienced it really. Scotland is pretty cold. This is actually not that cold, even though I felt quite cold mm. when I came in the morning. Mm. Um, I do think Scotland is colder. Um, I don't know if you remember um, back in our seminary where we studied in Jamia, mm. mm. those mornings when you woke up early for our morning prayers, that, that chill that you sometimes got yeah. uh, closing the window maybe yeah. quickly, yeah. um, kind of reminded me of that when I was walking outside this morning. Mm. Um but yeah, I think Scotland is much, uh, much colder than this. And yeah. it, it snows there a lot more as well, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, where I live, it's, it's like the central belt. So um, it's, it, yeah, I guess, yeah. I think more if you go up north to mm. like towards like the, the highlands, it's, it's, it's frequently snowing up there. Yeah, definitely. That's great. That's great. Um, so in terms of the news with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community as well, um, most of our listeners are as well. We covered this. Um, in Voice of Islam as well, we had the Palestinian uh, ambassador who calls for ceasefire in Gaza. This was at the Voices of Peace event in the UK Parliament. And uh, this event was actually organized by the Amdiya Muslim Youth Association, uh, which conducted a Voices for Peace event at the House of Commons. And journalists, media representatives, they were present to the event and where Mr. Hussam Zolmot, ambassador to the United Kingdom for Palestine and other politicians, uh, they were talking and uh, about the plight of, uh, about the plea of uh, Palestinians and the immediate need for peace in the world. So, just a little information about the event. The event itself, it started in the evening around five thirty-five. Uh, with the recitation of the Holy Quran by respected Imam Talat Sayyam. Um, and uh, following the recitation of the Holy Quran, a series of guests were given the platform to talk about the importance of uniting at this time and the need for raising our voice in a peaceful manner and to bring about an effective solution amid the violations of human rights uh, being witnessed in Palestine. And uh, I particularly wanted to highlight what uh, Mr. Hussam Zolmot, the head of the Palestinian mission through the UK, he delivered a heartfelt address to the audience regarding the question of Palestine and Israel and how important it is for supporters of Palestine to raise their voice in this dreadful time. And he called for an immediate ceasefire and said that the world is listening and he added, that how we act today will determine which side of history uh, will be uh, on will be on 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 in the future and uh, also at this uh, particular event the president of um, of the of of palestine itself um uh, he he of the md muslim community he was also uh, present uh, brother ode 
and uh, what's interesting jalees is that uh, we have a f- for the listeners that don't know we the hamdi muslim community uh, we have a community in israel as well in a small yep. place called haifa yep and uh, for the past few weeks you know since all of this has been happening um, you know they've been holding events as well of solidarity where not only only the muslim brothers but also the jewish community that they have gathered as well and uh, you know they've they've come to an understanding that why it's so important for us to stop violence at yep. this particular time and uh, you know just as it mentions in the holy quran that the killing of uh, of a person is as if akin as akin to uh, killing the whole of mankind yeah, absolutely and uh, you know th- this at this particular moment this is what we should understand and uh we should highlight this as much as we can definitely yep and uh another particular um event which took place in the amdi muslimity and and we do like to cover this as well on a weekly basis especially on the friday morning as well is the sittings as holiness has with the members of the amdi muslim community around the world and uh, just recently on the on sunday on the 12th of november Uh, his holiness he had a chance to have a sitting with the youth members of the community and uh, not just any youth um, these were the waqfinano and uh, just a little introduction to the waqfinano as well this was a scheme which was initiated by the fourth caliph within the community hazrat mustafa and may allah the almighty have mercy on him in 1987 and uh, at that time when uh, the community was need of of experts in particular fields such as missionaries doctors architects mm-hmm. so his holiness he said that you know our parents parents should especially focus on dedicating these children that uh, when the time comes they are ready to then uh, become useful assets to the community as well and now um, by the grace of allah the almighty we know that his holiness Uh, when he delivered the annual convention he mentioned that this number itself has exceeded 80,600 around the world Allah. and Allah, yeah. uh, out of these individuals <coughs> as well uh, a lot of them have become doctors a lot of them have become missionaries and uh, they're serving in various aspects as well um, <laughs> as you know as well I serve in the uh, Wakfinor department Absolutely. as well so yeah. I, I, I know what's happening on a daily basis and uh, um we we have a magazine as well um and in which we highlight some of the work our youth is doing as well and uh, just give you an insight uh, will be uh, one of our brothers will be writing an article on this as well um he's also an engineer himself just just an example of what people are doing so he's an engineer himself uh, who's graduated in germany and he's been on various projects within the community as well he's gone to uh water for life projects in africa mm. um i had the chance actually to when i was in mali to see his work um and uh, you know the amount of effort he's put into uh making sure that you know the locals over there have clean and fresh water so and and you know what we've done is that we've told him to write in an article and also encourage other other brothers you know or sisters who do want to go in this field as well that how can they do that so this is in a nutshell an introduction of uh, wakfineno uh, bo- both for both boys and for girls 
And His Holiness, uh, on the 12th of November, he had a chance. He, he had a virtual sitting with them. And uh, uh, Mabrur, he recited a poem um, after the after the recitation of the Holy Quran. It was Mabrur who recited a poem uh, composed by uh, the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him. And after that, His Holiness, he inquired about the mosque which they were seated to to which he was informed that they were at the Betul Mukit Mosque, which is in Brussels. And following this, uh, these members then had the chance to ask various questions to His Holiness and seek his guidance. So we'll just be um, looking at one or two questions uh, within this uh, within this segment. So one question which was asked was, how can we increase our love and loyalty for the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And uh, His Holiness said that we should continue to recite the Rushriv, the salutation uh, on uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and understand its meaning. And if one, he said that if one understands this with the intention of understanding its meaning, then this will be a means of increasing one's love and loyalty to the Holy Prophet. His Holiness also added that the promised Messiah he once said that one night he recited uh, the Rushdiv so continuously with such fervor that he saw in a vision that angels said that this is the man who loves the Messenger of Allah. So th- that is a beautiful answer that we should con- continue to recite salutations upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, one student, a uh, 19-year-old student, he of economic he sought His Holiness' guidance on which field he should pursue and uh, to this His Holiness advised for him to continue and excel in economics, suggesting that he should aim for a PhD in the subject and furthermore His Holiness recommended that studying the book of the second caliph of the MDA Muslim community as well, um, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him as a Muslim the, on the economic system of Islam and dwelling into the teachings of the Holy Quran in this respect and additionally uh, His Holiness emphasized that in a world dominated by the interest based system the students should explore uh, how by an establishing an Islamic system one can liberate society from such practices so you'll see quite often as well that a lot of the youth members who have reached a particular age as well they will write to his holiness for guidance on what is the sort of subject that they should mm-hmm. go into and how can they help the community as well and we've seen that how his holiness he goes into so much detail mm-hmm. uh, that you know this is what the community is in need of you can go into this particular field and we've seen that you know his holiness personally himself yeah. he's given a lot of time and effort to a lot of these youth members as well yeah so it's it's very uh, motivating to yeah. see as well do you know uh, honestly i find it really fascinating how um, no matter what line of work you are doing especially these um these dedicatees these um, devotees life devotees um uh, the the work you know um, no matter what path or whatever field they're going into his holiness always has some sort of advice for them that always benefits them in the future and it's amazing no matter what so for example this gentleman you mentioned right now he's studying economics 
and what beautiful advice, um, what beautiful advice um, Ms. Owen has actually provided. And say them um, study further and deeper into Islamic economics. Um, so this is, the, I mean, the, 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 this is um, en- enlightening. Honestly, it's amazing. Absolutely, and I, and I think we can just close with uh, one more. Um, I think another brother, uh, Rana Safir Ali, he asked if uh, if as a as a Wakfano <coughs> he could become a politician. And uh, His Holiness, he re- replied in affirmative and added that uh, he should be an honest politician and not lie. And today's politicians are not courageous. They are unable to speak against what is happening to the Palestinians. And as they adhere to the policies set by the parties, influenced uh, by funding sources, one should raise their voices against oppression wherever it occurs. And if Israel's uh, Israelis are being oppressed, then speak up for them. And if Palestinians are being oppressed, then speak for them. And one should speak the truth. And you know, you Wajilis quite often you'd find how motivating His Holiness is that he encourages that uh, even if you were to go into fields such as a politician as well, then His Holiness has highlighted that you know make sure that you're courageous. And even if you have to stand up and go against the whole party um, you know even though uh, they might be wrong and you might be in the right then you should at that time be courageous and you should stand up um, and uh, this is the sort of moral upbringing as holiness yep. has done yep. to these individuals as well um, so that's just a little insight on uh, you know this this week with Hazur and uh, certainly I think whenever I uh, listen to this it is a very encouraging for me as well uh, how His Holiness guides the members of the community as well um, and and it shows how personally as, as a leader of the community uh, how much how much deeply he's involved um, in uh, in looking after the community as well yeah. and I think when it comes to that question of leadership as well you know ideally do we see a leader within the community, like not within the community, but in the world. Yep. If you look at it, for example, a prime minister of a country or a king or queen, um, do we see them putting this much effort yeah. as a caliph of the community, a spiritual leader would put in yeah. to the community? And you'd be amazed that, uh, you know, absolutely not. And you'd look at the, the character and life of a caliph um, and we can see within our eyes that how much effort he puts in and uh, you know how much he prays for the community and that itself is is truly inspiring um so you know that's that's why that's one reason as well we do on a weekly be- basis as well we do cover uh, some of these virtual meetings mm-hmm. with his holiness as well and you can find uh, snippets of these meetings as well on the youtube channel mta news um, so with that, uh, we can close this particular news uh, item. If there's any anything else you want to mention, you can. Uh, not not really. Th- th- there were some football news. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if you watched the Scotland match yesterday. No, uh, no, I did. <laughs> it was it, it was two two uh, against um, Georgia. Georgia, Georgia, and I think England are playing today against Malta as well. Okay. So it might be something to watch out for. Who are you spoiling for, Scotland or England? Obviously, Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, the the iron brew never goes. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It runs through my veins. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, with that, dear listeners, we're just going to be taking a short break, and we'll be back after that, and we'll be going into our main segment.
Welcome back listeners, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you We are back, it is 7.31am Friday I do believe it's the 17th of November 2023 And uh, we're just going to go right into our first segment This is Interfaith Week 2023 We are right in the middle of Interfaith Week Um, But what is Interfaith Week? So each year Interfaith Week begins on Remembrance Day Sunday and runs until the following Sunday and it is hoped that the additional Sunday provides the opportunity for other weekend events to take place as well as those linked with Remembrance Day, um, the Remembrance Day Sunday. And Remembrance Day Sunday was chosen as a start day to encourage people to remember together the contributions of all faiths and none and to consider how best to create a just peaceful and harmonious world so what is what what is this what is the purpose of um interfaith week what what was what's actually the need and well in, in in a nutshell it's to strengthen good interfaith relations at all levels it increase awareness of the different and distinct faith communities in the uk in particular celebrating and building on the contribution which their members make to their neighbourhoods and to wider society and to increase between um, intre- increase understanding between people of religious and non-religious beliefs I think this this is beautiful and I think this is this is exactly what we need in today's society right now and I don't think it could come at a better time as well um, just a little background context and a little bit of history behind Interfaith Week. So in July 2008, the Department for Communities and Local Government published uh, a document um, named Face to Face and Side by Side. And this is a framework um, for partnership in our multi-faith society because the UK, we, uh, us um, speaking from the South London studios over here, London in specific is, is a melting pot of different um, different people from different creeds and backgrounds and um, nations. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a melting pot, literal melting pot. Um, and uh, this 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 um, this multi uh, this uh, interfaith week is to highlight that we are living in a multi faith society and to embrace and accept this. And this document, in specific, in in specific, presented the government's strategy for encouraging the further development of interfaith activity in England. It set out how faith communities, the government and wider society can work together at all levels to bring people of different religious backgrounds together. In the course of the consultation, the Executive Committee of the Interfaith Network for the UK proposed the introduction of an Interfaith Week, the one that we're actually going through right now, drawing on their experience of a successful week of this kind held in Scotland. So yes, Scotland was one of the first places to hold the Interfaith Week. Um, one of the government's undertakings in the final document was to work in partnership with the Interfaith Network for the UK, with its uh, member bodies to organise an Interfaith Week in 2009. Uh, the Interfaith Network links national faith community representative bodies, so national, regional and local interfaith bodies, and education and academic bodies with an interest in interfaith issues. And the first Interfaith Week was held in 2009. It was very successful with a range of exciting events taking place across England and Wales. These events included interfaith sports, discussions and dialogues, walks and pilgrimages. 
um, festivals and celebrations, exhibitions, concerts and classroom activities. So jam-packed with a lot of activities. Faith communities across the country took part alongside schools, colleges, universities, local authorities and many other types of organisations. So this is happening all across um, England and Wales right now. Um, I was actually checking their website, checking what the um, events that are taking place all across the UK, Liverpool, Manchester. It's amazing. It's it's, it's honestly uh, amazing. This is um, it's exactly what we need, as I said in the beginning, um, to unite and uh, and uh, live and in, in harmony and peace. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank yeah. you for that, uh, Brother Jadis. And uh, now we're going to be listening to uh, Sabia, who is a Muslim chaplain at the Univ- at the Roehampton University London and she's a member of the multi-faith chaplaincy team uh, she's also a keen advocate and active worker for interfaith dialogue and mutual cooperation uh, good morning to you and uh, thank you for joining us this morning thank you very much for having me good morning as well um, so Sabi I wanted to ask you firstly that what activities did your multi-faith team plan uh, during this uh, multi-faith week? Um, yeah, so as part of Interfaith Week, we've um, well, been observing that for the last few years that I've been in this role um, as, a, as a chaplain. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, a week that we've, um, I suppose in some ways, um, traditionally started off uh, with the, um, you know, the remembrance service. Um, so last week, actually, we um, held a multi-faith remembrance service um, on campus, and it's something that um, we do, we plan together, we are kind of put together as well to make sure that there is um, a, a chance for people of faith to join, but people of you know, no faith at all as well who can come along and be part of um, that particular programme. Um, and so that's something that we've, we've done this week as well, or if we extend it to last week, into this week, so into faith week. Um, but that's that's to start things off. And I think that starts us off in a good stead where we're doing things together. And as you just said as well, it's important to unite. So we're always looking to do activities this week that and unite us. So, you know, another couple of examples are that we've run a... Um, a drinks and donut session where we gather people together from the Christian community to um, mark Interfaith Week. And, you know, if we can find any ways to lower barriers between each other and invite discussion and conversation, that's what we're aiming to do. Um, I've run an A to Z of Islam, um, and it's also Summer for the Awareness Month in November. And so lots is going on that is allowing people to come and find out more about faith and one another's faith and and you know take part in things together absolutely and and you mentioned that an event was actually held in in campus earlier uh, what was the feedback like was it well received or did a lot of do a lot of students uh, attend these events as well yeah i mean we are really um fortunate to be able to have a active community on campus that um, you know, likes to learn and take part. It's a learning environment, and so I think it's um, it, it goes hand in hand with what what we're aiming for as well. And students do come along and did come along, um, as well as staff. And you know, feedback was that it was a powerful um, event, the remembrance service in particular. But then other activities that we've done this week, you know, maybe worth also mentioning is that we've planted a peace poll on campus as part of the Global Peace Poll campaign and students and staff were able to write down their thoughts, reflections and prayers 
um, and entered the Minstis Peace Poll, which was actually planted um, at Southland College at the university um, on Monday. And um, we had a fantastic number of students who engaged and took part. And I think people are seeking opportunities to be able to, you know, do things which can elevate their spirituality, you know, as well as their mental well-being. Um, and this week in particular, Interfaith Week, I think it allows for that to ha- take place in as long as opportunities are there. Thank you for that. And uh, I think one more question from my side, and I'll pass the mic on to yeah. uh, my co-presenter. I want to ask you, what are the benefits of these multi-faith activities as well? Um, why why is there a need for that? Um, I think that um, the need to be able to you know build understanding and cohesion in, in our society. Um, you know, if we're looking to be able to build a cohesive society and have peace, I think it's really important that you know we don't just learn about each other from the internet perhaps or through textbooks but actually spend time with each other as well because I think through that spending time with one another we're able to ask things in, in, a, in a way which you know invites that kind of curiosity about each other um, and kind of gently learn a little bit more uh, through our curiosity as well and I think that that's really needed in this day and age um, so I think you know it's something which will hopefully lead to a more understanding world that we can live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning, Ms. Sabiha. Thank you for uh, having me. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for obviously taking your time out in this early, uh, early hours of the day. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, and, um, I, us, uh, b- both of us, or all of us being Muslims, um, obviously we are aware that um, in Islam, spirituality has a huge part to play in our faith. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in general, uh, generally, um, in general terms, what percentage of students or in general, do, do students, um, would you say, show an interest in spiritual matters? That's a really good question. Um, I think it can vary. I think, you know, through, for example, in a, in a university journey, I suppose when, when students come into university, there are peaks and troughs. So, you know, at the start, everybody wants to participate in things. And then you see this drop, you know, in the middle of um, the first term in particular. And I think that, you know, like with most things, people's spirituality also goes through peaks and troughs as well, and it changes. Um, you know, it doesn't stay constant all the time. And I think we can, we know that as, as Muslims as well. It's important to keep trying, you know, um, to practice things or get involved in things. Um, and to, you know, ask God for that support as well to be able to partake. I think in terms of a percentage, I suppose in, in a, you know, if you look at things overall, um, it feels like sometimes a small percentage that will come along, you know, to activities. But actually the the way that, um, you know, activities are conducted and then message spread, you know, on social media, um, as well as our kind of digital platforms, means that the outreach actually of our activities and what we're doing um, is much, much wider than we can we can sometimes imagine it to be. Um, so, for example, yeah. uh, this week was Diwali. Um, Diwali on campus was marked on Tuesday, <coughs> and um, it invited people of, you know, the Hindu community to come and take part, but also, mm. you know, students came along from all sorts of different cultures and faiths as well. Um, and then that kind of, by word of mouth, you know that that event was talked about in all corners of the world because um, yep. it was shared on social media and it became something that invites people to think oh 
actually, I do want to get involved in the university experience because that's somewhere I can be feel like I can belong mm. and also get to know other people as well. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you so much, Lyle. Um What do you think can be done to engage um, the students' interests more? Because um, try, trying to uh, gauge them and try to pique their interest in these kind of matters could be a little bit difficult. Um, yeah. so, so what do you think can be done um, engaging their interests a little bit more? Um, again, a really good question. I think that um, involving people um, is just mm-hmm. key, absolutely key. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who's, you know, been a student myself and then, you know, gone on to being in um, um, the staff department for the last 20 years in higher education. And um, I think key is really that kind of partnership, that collaboration. And that goes for within the university environment, but also outside as well. If you can find ways to be able to connect to your neighbours, to those who you're living with, studying with, um, you know, it's 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 key to involve other people as well. And we had a great number of student volunteers actually take part this week um, who then led on activities. So, for example, at Diwali, a Rangoli was made, um, you know, and then a puja was done. And yeah. so actually invited people who can make their, their events authentic. Um, that I perhaps wouldn't have been able to have done. So actually, you know, kind of accepting that actually we can't do everything and actually involving others is is really part and parcel of making things feel as welcoming, you know, as possible. And like I said, lowering those barriers between, you know, what you'd like to achieve through Interfaith Week perhaps and asking people, usually people are quite willing and forthcoming Mm -hmm. about getting involved. So for example, today I've got... Um, an international and interfaith tea for the Muslim community after Juma, and I know when people come to Juma, they will be very willing to come and take part and help out. Um, and just inviting them to do so, to then be able to share a bit about their own faith with the wider yeah. community is good practice. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, especially if you have some tea on offer, then yes. I think <laughs> I think they'll definitely be uh, running uh, towards yeah. you for that. Um, no, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, for one, I think even our listeners will definitely benefit um, from this. Uh, is is that um, w- what does a Muslim chaplain do? If 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 you would like to kind of address this, um, I would love to know. I think this will be really beneficial for our <laughs> listeners as well. Um, so I've been uh, within the role for the last. Um, about eight years approximately Um, and in the role it's a very varied role and um, I'm there to be able to in this environment anyway support the Muslim students and staff to be able to continue their their faith journey and spirituality while they are studying at the university I look after all the press spaces I offer space for pastoral care as well so Mm -hmm drop in to come and have a have a chat yeah. um, we support with all sorts of different life circumstances marriage bereavement etc and you know we're just there as, as a as a place to be able to come and you know have conversation perhaps about faith perhaps about something entirely different mm-hmm. um, but chaplains don't just exist within universities they're also in the military in hospitals mm-hmm. you know at the airport perhaps as well so it's um, it's definitely a career path which can be in different sectors Mm-hmm. And also something that invites you to be able to carry your faith and be able to share it with um, those in your community as well. It's a very privileged role, I'd have to say. And, uh, may Allah bless you for all your hard work. Um, thank you. I think, I think um, our listeners and uh, 
all of us have really benefited from um, for, for, from this information. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, th- thank you so much, Ms. Sabiha, for coming on this morning. Um, I really appreciate your uh, um, your time and uh, I hope you have a really good day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it you and happy interface week as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Miss Sabiha, uh, who is a Muslim chaplain at Roehampton University in London, um, and she is a member of the multi-faith chaplaincy team. Um, sorry, chaplain, uh, chaplaincy team, and uh, is a very keen advocate and active worker for interfaith dialogue and mutual cooperation. So that was Miss Sabiha. Um, it's very, very well said. Yeah, okay. very well, very well said, very yeah. well said. Mm. Uh, but I was quite more surprised at your presenting skills. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me blush. <laughs> you seem to be getting the hang of it now. Yeah, no, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm learning from the best. So it's good. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Sabia Iqbal, for joining us this morning. And uh, now we have another um, uh, expert uh, with us as well. Uh, this was a pre. This is a pre-recorded interview. Um, and over the week, as I mentioned, I had the chance to interview Phil- Philomena uh, Clifford. And Philomena, she's an active member of the Baha'i Faith and also of Cromwell Faith Forum. She's active in promoting interfaith understanding and dialogue. Uh, so we had a chance to interview her on uh, this th- same theme. So we're just going to be listening to her interview now. So we have with us today at the Voice of Islam radio station, Philomena Clifford, and you are a Baha'i member of the Cornwall Faith Forum. Uh, good morning to you and thank you for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, good morning and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Um, now, the first question I wanted to ask you was with regards to the Cornwall Faith Forum, if you can just explain um, the purpose and some of its aims and objectives. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, you can imagine Cornwall is quite a different area from London. You know, it's a predominantly rural area, not as diverse, and all of that. So, it, way back in 2008, a small group, um, you know, including, um, you know, an Anglican um, priest who was had a you know social responsibility brief with his his job you know he felt that you know we should form some sort of interfaith group in Cornwall so they started off with four people it was himself a Baha'i and I think a couple of Buddhists and it's just grown from that you know to what we have today it's not huge you know it's a it's a small group but it's diverse um, and it we represent the seven major faiths within our group yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I mean, you've, you've mentioned um, uh, so, so seven major faiths. Um, is that in Cornwall? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so what it is, we have, uh, well, we have uh, representatives from Baha'i, Buddhist, Christian, mm. Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, and, and the pagan faith within Cornwall. It's not, um, you know, exclusive of any others at all. You know, in fact, we have, uh, we've always had very active humanists reps as well basically we encourage everybody to participate because it interfaith is for everybody of all faith and none really to promote understanding and to you know just get people together in dialogue 
No, absolutely. Um, you mentioned interfaith uh, forums. You know, we here at our mosque as well, we hold many interfaith forums. Uh, we had one recently last week as well. Why do you think interfaiths are very much important in this particular time and age? Oh, that's that's really excellent to hear that you're, you know, that you're holding faith at your mosque. I think, you know, it, it's sort of, in today's world, it's becoming increasingly important, I think, you know, for us to achieve peace. We will only get there through understanding and we'll only get there through dialogue. And dialogue only happens through bringing people together, you know, people from diverse backgrounds together. And... Um, I mean, the, the actual format of our inter, interfaith group, we have three, we've sort of, it's developed over time, really. It's been very organic and it's developed into three sort of separate strands, really, which are also unified. But one is kind of learning for peace. So that's like a big emphasis on education. The second one is sharing for peace and also building for peace. And I, I can talk about those separately, but on the sharing for peace, that's sort of where we, we, we literally come together. We've planted trees. We have a site in Truro in Cornwall where we hope to make an interfaith building for everybody, you know, in the future. And as, but we haven't yet, you know, got enough funds to do that. But in the main, meantime, we've been have, having events like planting trees. So for each faith group, we've planted a tree. So symbolically, that's such a nice thing to do. We also go on walks together. And I think one strength, it, it, might, it might look like a weakness, but I see it as a strength, is that we're quite a small group. Because we're a small group, we, um, we become proper friends together. It's not like, oh, the Muslims are over there, the Baha'is are over here, the Hindus mm. are over there. When we go on a walk, we, we're all together because we're so few. And we often choose a theme for the walks that we do. And, you know, it might be something like sacrifice, let's say, or, um, you know, something like that. And honestly, if you close your eyes, we, we choose writings from our own sacred texts. And we all come back and we say, honestly, if we didn't look and see what people were wearing, you would think we were all one. You know, there's no clashing, nothing at all. It's, it's really lovely to promote understanding between us all and for us to be genuine friends i think that's the important thing absolutely no very important uh, message for me uh, philomena and i think before we just let you go as well how can we raise more awareness about interfaith week and interfaith events yeah that's a really good question it's um I, I think myself, I mean, we have we have a website, you know, the Cornwall Faith Forum has a website. We um, advertise, you know, through our mailing list and things like that. And, of course, social media. I think that's the way the way to go. And I'm, I'm thinking perhaps we should have a really big push on social media now going into the future, because I think people are just getting tired with you know, what's available at the moment and, you know, the antagonism. And I think, you know, people want to come together more. They're, they're, I think they're actively searching for a way to get on with their fellow brothers and sisters across the world of all, you know, all races, all religions. We, you know, we want to get on. We want to find peace and work to make the world a better place for, 
you know, ourselves and our children. And so I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, if you have any ideas, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Fina Fina Clifford, for joining us this morning. And, uh, you know, we do welcome you as well. If ever you're in uh, this part of London, then please do come and visit us. We will be very happy to host you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, so that was uh, Philomena Clifford. Uh, So thank you for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your um, expertise on this particular subject. Um, We are just approaching the 8 o'clock news. um, And, uh, you know, we after that, we'll be looking more deeply into this particular topic as well. But uh, I think one thing I wanted to mention... um, Brother Jalice, is that uh, a lot of there are some critics which criticize that uh, religion actually is the cause of bloodshed in the world. Uh, there is one particular critic by the name of Steve Wells, and he calculates that according to the Bible, uh, 2.4 million people were killed under divine wrath. And uh, he says that uh, the Bible figure is actually wrong. And according to his estimate, the actual figure is far greater than that. And he calculates it as 25 million. Mm -hmm. Now, the question here, uh, which should be asked, is that has science resulted in far greater deaths than religion? So in actuality, religion has always taught its followers to adopt peace reconciliation and purity mm-hmm. um, but however just for the sake of argument if we say that let's say what Steve Wells is saying is true if we look at a scientific perspective if we look at some of the scientific devices or inventions such as chemical weapons and if we look at let's say let's just say let's look at World War Two, the death toll of World War Two exceeded 60 million deaths mm. to 70 million. Now, the question here is that, was that a religious war? Mm-hmm. Whereas Steve Wells, he estimates that the figure of 25 million. So the crux of the matter is that, uh, you know, religion does not tell, does not teach to kill. It only warns and admonishes people that they must adopt peace and security. Mm-hmm. And we know that the Holy Quran teaches that every prophet that came to this world, they brought the same message, which yeah. was to end cruelty, to end injustice, oppression, persecution. They should all be eliminated. And mm-hmm. people should adopt love, sympathy to one another. However, God does mention of punishment, God's punishment for for reformation. But we see that when the prophets of God Almighty, when they do come in the world, they are very small in number. And even their community is very small, very weak. Mm. Um, and uh, they always teach the message of peace. Yep. Um, and I think this is something which should be highlighted where... You do have have critics such as Steve Wells who criticize that, oh, let's say, for example, religion is the cause of religion. Mm -hmm. Or some people might say as well, religion is the cause of, uh, but 
when we actually look further deeply into it mm-hmm. uh, we find that that is not the case yeah. and I, I guess when it comes to the question of religion as well um, the question here is that can we live without religion mm-hmm. can we say that if there is no religion then we will be truly at peace we will be truly content with how we're living our lives so I think these are the main fundamental questions here to be asked and uh, we'll be looking at this more in detail after the 8 o'clock news Um, so we're just having the 8 o'clock news and after that we'll be going further into this discussion and after that um, we'll be going into our second segment and uh, we'll be looking at empty classrooms reveal the long shadow of COVID. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Uh, you're listening to myself, uh, Tokir and Imam Jalees Khan here in the studio of Voice of Islam. Um, and we're just discussing the first topic of Interfaith Week, a very important topic. And uh, as Jalees mentioned as well, that this is the time uh, of the year where, you know, throughout the country, there have been interfaith forums which have been taking place as well. Um, certainly the Amdiya Muslim community has been actively taking part in this as yep. well. Um so, I mean, this this particular segment, we were looking at that, um, you know, what, what does Islam say uh, when it comes to religion as well? And I was highlighting the point earlier before the news as well that if we look at religion itself, religion uh, is never, religion is never a, uh, you know, you could say that the reason why there is violence in the world or there's bloodshed and uh, I think before we were discussing the question that if we take religion out of the equation you know then then uh, what are we do do we say that we've uh, we can be morally everything is absolutely correct yeah. so what we believe is that religion is what gives us happiness you know yeah. religion is everything for us if we yeah. look at for example Islam Everything revolves around God Himself. Yeah. You know, you you get up in the morning, you're remembering Allah the Almighty. Five times a day, you know, you're constantly remembering Allah the Almighty, and it becomes like a core uh, part of our core, really. And we, we can't say that we can go a day or two without even reading our prayers. You know, you get so used to it, or you feel so much peace or tranquility out of it that. Yeah. You come to a stage where you say to yourself that, man, I can't, I can't, I can't go through a day if I miss my fajr, if I if I miss my prayers. Um, so this is the comfort that religion gives you, and this word is mentioned in the Holy Quran as well when we read uh, that that the whole purpose of man is that they may come one with the Creator, that they may understand or have that recognition. With their creator um, And certainly another verse of the Holy Quran Is that That truly it is the remembrance Of Allah the Almighty That hearts find comfort So this is what we say That uh, when you have religion Then this is your pathway you know, To find God Or to find inner peace yeah. 
within ourselves and if there is inner peace within ourselves then we can give that peace to the society we can mm-hmm. give that peace in at our homes or at a at a wider place rather um than you know spreading violence or mm-hmm. or bloodshed now islam is based on the principles of peace love and reconciliation and this is emphasized by the fifth caliph of the amdiya muslim community azad mirza musur ahmed the world head of the amdiya muslim community and he asserts that the literal meaning of of the arabic word islam is peace itself mm-hmm. and the when the very name and foundation of religion is peace mm-hmm. it is impossible for that religion to promote anything that undermines peace and well-being of the society so if the word uh, islam itself means peace as well then it is impossible that you know the religion itself promote something else anything else yeah. but peace and you know this is what we see in the example of the holy prophet peace be upon him as well that he showed through his example tolerance tolerance and freedom of religion and this is exemplified in an example when a delegation of christians from najran they came to visit the holy prophet peace be upon him and uh, during their visit they became a little agitated and uh, when the holy prophet peace be upon him when he inquired as to what the matter was uh, the 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 delegation the the brothers they said that it was actually their time for prayer mm. and to this the holy prophet peace be upon him very graciously he offered his own mosque and he said that you can go pray in in yeah. the mosque over there now through this example he showed that uh, anyone is welcome to the mosque quite often when we do get guests coming as well to our mosque as well mm. a lot of them will ask I, i'm not a muslim am i allowed to come yeah. to the mosque but through this example um you know the the holy prophet peace be upon him he showed uh tolerance and freedom of religion and the fifth caliph he explains regarding this incident he as well he says that through this Munificent and magnanimous gesture, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. He set an everlasting example of tolerance, freedom of religion, freedom of worship for all mankind. Yeah. So, I think this is something which which we wanted to highlight that Islam, as per the Holy Quran, it enshrines freedom of belief as mm-hmm. a basic human right, and it emphasizing the importance of protecting the rights of all individual. regardless of their faith. Yeah. Anything you wanted to mention yeah. on this? No, um beautifully put. Um you want to hear. Um I think us as Muslims we need to look at the the holy Quran as the primary source. Um the holy book itself, the holy Quran. And what it, what the holy Quran says and what it instructs um instructs us to 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 do. And the holy Quran says come to a word equal between us and you. How, how how beautiful is this um this this little portion of the holy quran that you should come to a word equal between us and you so there's no uh, there's no need to um uh nitpick um defects in other people's religions or other people's beliefs instead you should come in a word equal between us because there are more similarities yes more similarities than differences between our faith our faiths um even even if it's not the abrahamic religions other faiths as well as as imam tukir has mentioned previously 
that uh, all religions, all prophets came and they 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 taught the the teachings of God Almighty, which was peace, and to abolish and to get rid of and erase um, cruelty in the world, and to um, create this kind of atmosphere where um, the rights of humans as well as God Almighty were met. So this is this was the job of the prophets and the job of and it is the duty of religion to uphold this as well in the world. Elsewhere in the Holy Quran, it states, and revile not those whom they call upon besides Allah. Again, this is emphasizing that instead of nitpicking and abusing, uh, this is what revile over here, revile not those whom they call upon besides Allah. Do not abuse or chastise those who do not believe in the same God as you. It means that to uphold this the sense of tolerance and religious freedom, okay, okay, this is fine. You do not believe in the same God as I do, but I will not abuse you. And this is the teaching of the Holy Quran. Something that I found enlightening, amazing, um, um, is a statement. Um, this was this this was some time ago. Um, however, I, stum- I stumbled upon it, and this was regarding um, the twin towers. So this was regarding um, uh, the September, September uh, the eleventh, where the towers fell. And afterwards, um, there was there was uproar. There was news. There was there's a lot of kerfuffle, uh, where they said that gay where they said that um, a mosque shall replace its once busy foundations. Yes, a mosque shall replace the once busy foundations of um, where the um, where the Twin Towers were mm. once placed. Mm. Um, and this caused outrage in society. I mean, why? Why would you place a mosque or, uh, in the Twin Towers? This is, this is, this is completely absurd. Um, but the flag bearer of religious tolerance, um, His Holiness, Hazrat Mizah, Masur Ahmad, May Allah strengthen his hand, uh, the fifth successor of the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. As I said, the flag bearer of religious tolerance. <coughs> Pardon me. Who left a message which implied that true tolerance demands compromise. Hence that day, he said that not only a mosque, but a church, synagogue and temple shall be built upon its foundations. So that from destruction emerges tolerance, unity, and peace. And this is this is amazing. This is exactly what we need. This is what we need. We need unity. We need harmony. We need peace in the world. And this was the teaching. This is this is the teaching of Islam. This is what Islam teaches us. So um, I, I found this absolutely amazing. And something to go back on um, something that Imam Taqir um, also mentioned in the, um, close to the beginning of this Islamic perspective um, section of. Um, our show today, uh, in in the first segment, was um, the delegation of Najr, the Christians of Najr, who came and the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, upholding upholding the teachings of Islam, um, portraying the the religious freedom that Islam instructs us to obviously proceed with. Mm. Uh, he instructed that the the delegation of Najr should. <coughs> Obviously, pray in the mosque, which was again amazing um, and upholding to the teachings of Islam. Similarly, we had another situation, um, if anything, um, on the other side, where um, the second successor of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, Hazrat Umar, um, may Allah be pleased with him, um, he had an opportunity to pray in a church uh, at a time um, and he denied this. 
Hmm. He, he he denied the, this opportunity. But why? Why would you deny the opportunity to pray? Um, what, what, what's wrong with this? Hmm. He had the he had this thought in his head. He had this thought in his head that he had, he had this fear, and this fear that if I pray in this church right now, maybe in the future, Muslims might come and they might annex this mosque. Uh, hmm. Sorry, the, the, this this church, and they might claim it to as as to be one of their own. Because he hmm. because he, he 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 didn't he he didn't know what the situation of Muslims would be. I mean, is 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 so. This is exactly what um, we see. It's not just showing a religious tolerance, but also keeping in mind the sentiments of other religions. And this is exactly what Islam teaches us. And this is very beautifully explained with these this, these few actions of, um, of 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 the followers of Islam. Absolutely, I think uh, I didn't I didn't know that uh, the the men- you mentioned about the second Khalifa Umar. Yeah. That's yeah. that not only um, you know was he thinking that. Uh, you know he he could pray but he was thinking on the long run that yeah. uh he was fearful that maybe this church uh some muslims maybe in the future might not uh, change yeah. this so looking after the sentiments yeah. that's also very important and this is what we see um uh, not only in in the prophets at that time but even the promised messiah peace be upon him the founder of the um, the muslim Ahmad, we see in his lifetime as well that even at that place, um, he was brought up in Qadian, yeah. in, uh, in this is in Punjab, in India. Um, and predominantly, if you do travel to Qadian, you'll see that mostly uh, <coughs> the the Muslim community is actually very small. But majority of them, uh, the people that live there are actually Hindus yeah. and uh, they're Sikhs as well. And, you know, it's so remarkable that when you do go there... Yeah. They're living so peacefully yeah. in harmony, and and showing love. Mm-hmm. And even next month is the <clears throat> annual convention as well, which is going to be taking place yeah. in in Qadian as well. And you'll see that not only Muslims but also people of other faiths, yeah. you know, will be happily joining the event as well. Definitely. Um. And and I guess this is what it's all about when it comes to interfaith as well. Yeah. That it is very important for all of us to come together. Mm-hmm and appreciate uh, each other and and our religion and uh, uh, you know we can this is a great opportunity to even present the beautiful teachings of each religion as well absolutely Um, absolutely muslims representing their religion buddhists representing their religion i i really enjoyed the interfaith event that i attended yesterday that uh, in the event there were some buddhists as well and they came and Mm. they started reading out prayers as well so that that was my first time I've actually seen yeah. um, Buddhists, you know, performing prayers collectively. So yeah. I, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, okay. um, and, yeah. and I guess it's a learning curve as well, mm-hmm. definitely for yeah. all of us. So so with that, we'll close this um, particular segment, and we'll be moving on now to our second segment. So we're looking at empty classrooms reveal the long shadow of COVID. So. Sir Kevin Collin, the government's education recovery star, resigned in uh, 2021 after the government scaled back his proposal for a multi-year multi of £15 billion catch-up programme to a tenth of what he recommended, an average of just an extra £22 uh, a year for every primary school child in England. And now we are seeing the consequences and one place they are showing uh, showing up in in is in school absences 
and Centre for Schools Social Justice Analysis of new government figures published last week shows that there are at least 140,000 children, almost 1 in 50 who miss more than half the time they should be in school, and more than double the numbers from before the pandemic, and more than 1 in 5 pupils are missing the equivalent of a morning of a school a week up to 60% since the pandemic. So what is going on? What is happening? So there have been superficial speculations from ministers um, and in the press that the culprit may be changing working patterns, but perhaps unsurprisingly to anyone who grappled with homeschooling while working, focus group research suggests that while cultural attitudes to attendance have changed, it's got nothing to do with homeworking. And instead, there has been a shift among parents right across the social spectrum from seeing everyday school attendance as a fundamental aspect of good parenting to viewing it more as one of the several competing demands. When a child has missed so much time in school as a result of pandemic, what difference will an extra day or two here or their make. So taking taking term time holidays to save money is therefore seen as a wholly social accept, acceptable and shifting attitudes towards the attendance have also underpinned by increasingly negative parental attitudes towards schools, including their perceived inability to cater to their child's educational needs. Yes, absolutely. And we also see that a lack of resources means provision for children with special needs and disabilities, so that's SEND, um, is suffering, um, well, they're suffering as well. Um, Parents who feel school doesn't cater for their child may feel forced to take their child out altogether and attempt to homeschool them. And as growing numbers of young people are suffering from mental health issues in the wake of COVID, including rising levels of anxiety, um, children's mental uh, health services are struggling with record waiting lists in England and young people unable to access care until things get very bad indeed. All of this will be playing into increased levels of absenteeism from school and the growing attainment gap between children from more and less affluent backgrounds, um, which was already widening before the pandemic. The proportion of young people leaving compulsory education without five GCSE passes has grown to almost one in five without action. We could expect it to go up further. And none of this is inevitable, but it will make money and patience to address, including far more resources for catch-up tuition, send provision, school home liaison, um, mental health services and early year support. The longer we leave it, um, the harder it will be and the more lives that will be unnecessarily blighted. Um, there's an advice uh, to the inquiry um, made by Longfield observed that during COVID, there appeared to be no one around the cabinet table taking responsibility for speaking up for children's best interest. So she said that, um, she, so she's right in saying this, but that's not an exclusive feature of COVID. This is a government that has neglected children's education and health and 
um, well before and long after it struck. So the pandemic will cast a long shadow over the COVID generation. And um, it's not uh, as a result, not of the virus, but terrible political choice. So this is something that maybe um, this is something that uh, so COVID was more of a catalyst towards this already, um, I mean, crippling and crushing um, governmental uh, system regarding education. Absolutely. So <coughs> we we have with us now um, Dr. Jenny uh, Driscoll, who is a program director, and she brings a children's rights-based approach to child protection and a background as a barrister specializing in care proceedings, fuels uh, commitment to research designed with the well-being and rights of children and young people at the core. And recent research includes a study of the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on multi-agency child safeguarding practice, an investigation of child protection in rural Ugandan settings. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, at the Voice of Islam radio station. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll get straight into it. Um, and we wanted to ask you how big of an effect did uh, COVID have on students? I think it's really clear that COVID had a significant effect on school students in a number of ways, some of which I think your previous speakers mentioned. And first of all, school attendance hasn't recovered fully from the impact of lockdown. And the government did initially propose some measures to deal with that in May last year, um, but then they abandoned the school bill in December last year. So things have improved a bit since the pandemic. Um, the ab- average absence rate this academic year is around 6.3% and 2.2% if that is unauthorised. It's quite difficult to make direct comparison with earlier years, but it was under 5% for the six years before the pandemic. I think what's most worrying, though, is um, the persistent absentee rate. And that relates to students who are missing 10% or more of possible student sessions in a year. Um, And that stood at 24% last year, which is more than double what it was before the pandemic. Uh, And obviously, unsurprisingly, students who are persistently absent are less likely to do well in their GCSEs. And we know that although some students struggled with being out of school, being away from their peers, kind of missing the regularity and uh, the peer support of schools during COVID, quite a lot of families actually found it less stressful to have their, uh, to educate their children online from home. And quite a lot of children found it really hard to go back to school, back into that routine uh, at the end of lockdowns. And we are looking at a significant increase in mental health difficulties and anxiety among children generically. Um, For some children, that has very much manifested in school phobia or school refusal, um, increasing post the pandemic. So that's now the most common issue that parents and carers are seeking advice from um, Action for Children's Parents talk on. Um, So on top of poorer attendance from students who are actually registered in schools, we actually have an increase in students who've been removed from the role as well. Mm. Um, And I think the other concern is that parents, too, are under more stress uh, in the aftermath of COVID with the cost of living crisis, with job insecurity, 
So we are seeing higher mental health problems among parents too. And that's a flag for increases in intimate partner violence. It's also a red flag for child maltreatment, child abuse and neglect. So we need to be alert to whether a minority of parents are keeping children away from school in order to prevent them coming to the attention of concerned professionals who might refer the family to children's social care for a child protection investigation. And that was a big concern for professionals in our study of multi-agency safeguarding during COVID. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Jennifer. Uh, you mentioned as well about the uh, effect of COVID-19 and on mental health as well. I wanted to uh, hear more a bit about your recent research uh, about the effects, uh, impact of COVID-19 on this world as well, if you could share that with our listeners. Uh, yeah, we, we investigated the impact of COVID on safeguarding for children, and that really highlighted how important schools are in supporting struggling families. Um, often that is in terms of mental health problems of families and children, um, and identifying children who are at risk of um, increased harm and referring those to children's social care. So we undertook um, 67 interviews initially with safeguarding professionals from a range of different agencies in London, and then we undertook an England-wide survey uh, in 2021. Um, And we saw just a huge concern about the impact of school closures on safeguarding children and young people. So people may recall that as well as children of key workers, children who were deemed to be vulnerable uh, in a number of ways were eligible to attend school and that included those who had a social worker or social care involvement. It would also um, included some discretion by schools or other professionals where they had concerns about parents coping, whether that was mental health or other other reasons. Um, And although um, our respondents thought that it was clear that many vulnerable children who were eligible to attend school didn't do so. Um, most commonly, that was thought to be due to concerns, understandable concerns about either the child's health or the carer's health, so you know, risk of uh, transmitting COVID to vulnerable people. Um, it was sometimes sort of broader anxiety in response to the national message to stay at home. But in fact, 85% of our survey respondents cited families taking advantage of the opportunity to disengage from safeguarding professionals as a contributory factor. Um, And additionally, some of our respondents were already reporting at that stage that some children um, felt more secure or happier at home. That was 85% of our respondents thought that. Um, And 82% were reporting that some children were in fact refusing to attend although we didn't manage to investigate the reasons for that in detail. So, you know, local areas use a range of strategies to try and get vulnerable children into schools. Mm. Um, It seems that encouragement by school staff, you know, personally known to the family, was most effective. Um, What's interesting is that most of our respondents thought school attendance should have been mandatory for all primary school uh, children who were vulnerable that was 87% of our respondents, and all secondary school vulnerable children, that's 85% of our respondents, if there was low clinical risk. And I think it is important to to flag here that we've seen that play out tragically. Um, obviously, the most uh, well-known case is probably that of Arthur Labinjo Hughes, who was six 
when he died in, in June of 2020 at the hands of his father and his stepmother. And there was involvement by social services during lockdown, but Arthur was one of those children who didn't return to school um, after the end of lockdown in early June of 2020 <clears throat> when they reopened. So, you know, possibly you can see that school may have been a protective factor for, for those kind of children if they did return to school. Um, and it's also right to say that 78% of our respondents thought that elective home education would result as a rise, uh, as, um, would rise as a result of the pandemic. And government figures are certainly showing that we've got more children now being educated at home um, for whatever reason. And uh, 86,200 known home educated children in January 2023, according to the government, which was up actually since in the last year. Um, and we were seeing a rise before COVID, but it was around 57,000 in 2018. So a significant rise um, since COVID. Then other organisations are putting the figures quite a lot higher, but home education is poorly regulated. So we don't really know what the true figures are. Yeah, that, that's that's a very huge number uh, that, you know, so many parents are now um, educating their children at, at home as well. What do you think, uh, Dr. Jenny, what could be the reason, one of the reasons for that? Um, I think there's a number of reasons for uh, home education. And some of them are, m- most parents obviously educate their parents at home for entirely le- legitimate reasons. Um, we know that uh, your, your previous speaker mentioned children with special educational needs and disabilities, and we, there does seem to be an increase as a result of children whose behaviour maybe is difficult to manage in schools without specialist support, and that particularly seems to be the case for children with autism and ADHD. Um, so quite often schools, uh, parents who feel that they're not getting support that their children need from schools may um, withdraw their children to be educated at home. Similarly, obviously, I've already mentioned school phobia and school anxiety, children with mental health difficulties. Um, For some parents, it may be that they're really struggling to juggle jobs and so forth, and actually getting children to school is, is very hard around their own personal uh, and professional responsibilities and circumstances. Um, poverty, I think, obviously plays a, a big part in, in parents being able to get children to school on time and breakfasted and uniformed and so forth. Um, and then, it, of course, the worry for those of us whose specialism in child protection is that there is a, a small um, proportion of parents who are removing their children because they feel that they are under scrutiny from schools and um, from potentially child protection services and they want to withdraw their children from that professional gaze and those children are are obviously at risk if they're not in school and and able to be seen by those those, uh, professionals. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Uh, my colleague here also has uh, some questions, so I'm just going to pass the mic on to him. Um, good morning. Uh, may the peace of Allah be upon you, um, Dr. Driscoll. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
Um, really appreciate your time. Um, the the statement or the phrase empty classroom seats revealed a long shadow of COVID. Um, obviously, this is a title from a newspaper headline. But how, <laughs> do, do you agree with the statement? Do you think this is a fair statement? Yes, I think I think it is valid. I think it's quite a complex picture. And as your last um, speaker mentioned, there is a history prior to the pandemic where, you know, clearly things were, problems were growing, which have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, but I, I think we are seeing uh, not just exacerbation by the pandemic, but for example, things like some families with health conditions were initially worried that they might be threatened with fines if children didn't return to school. So it seems that they removed them to homeschooling to avoid that. And this, this punitive approach to mm, children not yeah. being in school is not necessarily effective. And certainly where parents you know, can't afford fines and, and, and are obviously struggling, it's, it's not necessarily that they are um, deliberately flouting the yep. law they are you know they're probably struggling to get their children into school and if you've got a, a school phobic or very ang- anxious teenager with fragile mental health mm-hmm. um it's very hard as a parent yeah. uh, it's not easy to get that child to school against their, their will and you, you may mm-hmm. be very worried about the consequences of doing so mm-hmm. um so as i've said many families are saying children's mental health and also actually parents relationship with their children mm-hmm. improved over COVID when children Mm. were not in school. Families had more time to spend at home with their children um, and everybody enjoyed that and that seems to have been beneficial. Um, So, uh, you know, there's lots of things, strain on special needs education um, services uh, long predates COVID and so does access to specialist support, um, mental health support. Um, So lots of things happening. I think the other thing we haven't mentioned that I'd really like to mention is um, peer-to-peer abuse in schools. Hmm. You know, we've always had bullying present in schools, very hard to address completely. Um, We know the internet has given 24-7 exposure to online trolling and so forth. It's made it really hard to protect children from pornography Mm -hmm. and potentially harmful activities like sexting. And it's given adolescents a really distorted picture, and younger children, it's, you know, it's um, in primary schools now, a distorted yeah. picture of intimate relationships. And, and we know that schools have really, really struggled to address peer-to-peer sexual, sexual abuse and harassment. Yeah. And I think that it, it's really difficult to, to unpick everything, but a, a lot of people think that that um, is quite a big factor in mental health difficulties for children mm. and for um, unhappiness at school as well as the kind of high test high stakes testing kind of environment that children are, are in at schools which obviously has has been um, in place for a long time before mm. the pandemic so thank you so much for addressing such um, serious um, obviously uh, things happening in our um, obviously um, places for places of education something that I I didn't really previously think um, that w- w- was such a big problem. Um, thank you so much for addressing that. Um, um, I, I would like to ask, um, Zoom became a massive part of education during COVID. And I believe that it still is. A lot of um, 
a lot of uh, seminars and forums are still held on Zoom. Do you think this might be um, also a factor um, that Zoom classes kind of made um, the students a little bit lazy, a bit lax? Um, they don't need to really attend classes as much. Um, I confess I don't know the answer to that. I wasn't aware that schools were still using um, a lot of online or Zoom classes. At universities, we are trying to get students back in, mm-hmm. um, and we but we are still using Zoom classes quite a lot. Yeah. And I think it is much harder, uh, certainly, to create a sort of sense of a community mm-hmm. and um, learning together, I suppose. Mm. No. It's, and it certainly is much easier for students to disengage, and it's hard for, as a teacher to kind of know where the students are concentrating on their studies when it's when it's a Zoom call and to get them. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's been lots of lots of good things implemented in, in in terms of you know online quizzes and that kind of thing to get to get students in, engaged but one of the one of the things from a child protection concern has always been if students have their cameras off you know you can't yeah. not only can't you see if they're engaging in education but you can't actually see get a get a state of their body language how how comfortable what their well-being mm-hmm. um as well absolutely absolutely thank you for that um my final question would be, what can be implemented to reduce the number of students missing education? It's a good question. And I, and I think we need to do a number of things in a range of different arenas. So first off is probably the need to boost mental health support in schools. Mm. So we have mental health support team trailblazers, which were introduced before the pandemic. Um, the NHS says it expects about 500 of these to be in place by 2024. When you think about how many thousands of schools there are in England, that's not quite as impressive mm. as it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already mentioned access to CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Really difficult, long delays, but also really high thresholds to access that service. Um, also, as we've mentioned, access to education, health and care play- plans for children with special educational needs, um, very hard to access, and send services in general need to improve. Um, From my perspective, the government stressed making up for lost learning after the pandemic. Um, You know, I've done a lot of research with children, young people who are in state care, and um, so we know from that, uh, children who have suffered trauma or have difficulties in their home lives, really have to be able to focus on their education in order to, you know, if we're going to get education standards up, they need to be in a fit state to focus on education. Mm-hmm. They can't do that if if their well-being's not right, if their mental health is poor, that's very difficult for them mm-hmm. to do. And we see that play out in behavioural difficulties in schools. So we really need to address anxiety, mental health, and we need to make school a place that children want, you know, want to be in and, and go to. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is uh, around the home education and children missing from school. So the government promised a register of home educated children. Um, That was included in the schools bill that was dropped last year. They are still saying they will take action on that. Um, Wouldn't in itself keep children safe, but it would be, it would help to make sure we know which children aren't in school. Mm. Um, In some countries, homeschooling is actually unlawful. 
that's not something this government's prepared to look at. But I think, you know, we do need at least to know who they are and then to make sure that if they're not in school, first of all, that they are safe in their home environment. And secondly, that they are actually getting um, a decent education in whatever form at home. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Thank you for addressing all these matters. I we really appreciate this, uh, Dr. Driscoll. Um, it's, it's, um, I, th- I think this will be really bit, really beneficial for our listeners and also um, us as well in the studio. Um, as a Programme Director of International Child Rights and Development, what what kind of um, day-to-day um, activities do you get up to? <laughs> um, well, I'm lucky. I, I have a, a kind of equal research and teaching workload. So mm-hmm. I teach um, a wonderful group of international students, uh, child rights, child protection, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of we explore different perceptions and n- norms of childhood and child rearing across the world uh, and explore what children's rights should look like in the 21st century. Yep. And then I have a program of Research. Um, currently, I'm I'm still looking at multi-agency safeguarding arrangements in England after the reforms in the Children and Social Work Act. Um, but I'm also interested in children's rights and the implementation of children's rights in um, internationally uh, and how they uh, fit with different cultures, uh, in yep. particular, sort of different ideas about child protection and what constitutes. Uh, Good, good parenting practice and what constitutes child maltreatment in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much um, for that. Thank you so much, Dr. Driscoll, for your time. Um, I hope you have a, a great day um, and, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So that was... Uh, so that was Dr. Jenny Driscoll, um, who's a Programme Director of International Child Rights and Development she brought uh, um, how children's rights-based approach to child protection and her background is as a banister specialising in care uh, proceedings um, as well. Um, something that really um, stuck with me is that how mental health um, is very important in an education, educational atmosphere and how we must um, definitely look, uh, look towards that as well um, and how... Um, um, those children of very young age, um, they do suffer from anxiety and we do not know what's happening in their households and we must uh, have a safe space in schools and we must address this point as well. And I think it was very well said, very well put by Dr Driscoll as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, all the guests have enjoyed the Scottish accent as well. The, the <laughs> I, I, I can tell straight away, you know, the the guests have really enjoyed how you welcomed them. So well, I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> some people say I've lost my Scottish accent. I don't know. Um, I think it's kind of uh, transformed to some kind of uh, Midlands, North East, North West type. Of, I don't know. Some kind of concoction over there, <laughs> but we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. So, um, for this uh, segment, I think we are just closing the the segment as well. And I think, in, ter- in terms of the Islamic Islamic perspective, we, you know, we just wanted to highlight how important education is really at yeah. this time as well, especially from what we've heard that you know COVID had a huge impact on uh, children's mental health as well and uh, 
a lot of them have really suffered and I was quite alarmed at looking at the numbers mm. uh, of homeschooling um you know I, I remember my our parents my parents probably your parents as well yep. uh, would have laid a great emphasis on yeah. not missing school yep. and uh, spe- <coughs> especially where we studied in in our theology institute Jamia the UK they were very strict yep. you, we can't we can't miss a day of um of school and and yeah. we had some students but, <laughs> but yeah. we had some student like throughout the year they had not missed even one day yeah. of university yeah. not even one day yeah. so it's it's remarkable and i think um you know islam itself uh lays a huge emphasis on attaining knowledge um and uh, islam even says that even if it might be difficult for you uh the journey might be difficult for you you should still um go through that difficulty to attain knowledge so if we look at chapter 20 verse 115 allah the almighty even teaches us the prayer that uh, oh lord increase me in knowledge and similarly the holy prophet peace be upon him mm-hmm. he has even instructed that it is the duty of every muslim man and every muslim woman to acquire knowledge so there is no uh, differentiation that women should be um you know they 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 should be um learning less islam stresses that both men and women have a right to education the holy prophet peace be upon him also instructed uh the literate, literate and well educated educated that they should teach the illiterate and this will help the weak among the society and mm-hmm. to stand in advance and uh, we see that even during the battle of badr which took yep. place on the 18th month after migration uh, his holiness he instructed uh, those prisoners that were taken captives that he would provide ransom to those who were literate um, and but they should first teach the illiterate members of the society mm-hmm. the holy prophet peace be upon him has said that the word of wisdom is the lost property of a muslim so that wherever he finds it he should take it and he is most entitled to it mm-hmm. and uh, as we all know as well one of the famous narrations of the holy prophet peace be upon him is that even if you have to travel as far as china to acquire mm-hmm. knowledge you should acquire knowledge but it's interesting that when he made this statement he made this statement 1400 years ago at a mm-hmm. time where the best mode of transport would have been through camel through mm. horses uh probably there were boats at that time as well yep. but you can imagine from arabia at that time to get to china it probably would have taken yeah. months absolutely that journey yeah. would have taken months but he said yeah. that even if you have to travel as far as that place to attain knowledge then you should do so mm-hmm. uh meaning that even if there is some sort of difficulty you should go through that hurdle Uh, in order to attain knowledge that's how uh, much islam emphasizes on attaining knowledge yeah no definitely absolutely this is something that um the fifth caliph um and the worldwide head of the ahmadiyya muslim community um his holiness something that he explained um in his address at unesco and he and i quote says that um access to good secular education has the power of breaking cycles of poverty that has plagued economically weak countries for generation we see that how how his holiness has 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 portrayed that 
education has such a strong power, has has a massive impact on social um, social standings. Um, so this education, good secular education, has the power of breaking these cycles, breaking these barriers. And um, I would like to say that our community in, in, in Islam in general, education um, is not just encouraged, but it has it is made accessible. So um, something that our beloved um, Hazur, His Holiness, um, um, mentions with pride. I know I've, I've I've seen a lot of interviews and a lot of sessions with His Holiness, and he he brings upon this point, especially talking about um, the rights of women and and uh, relating with uh, this with education. He states that the literacy rate of Ahmadi Muslim girls in the developing world is ninety nine percent, and this bears testament. Um, and this bears testament to the fact that um, Islam promotes the teaching um, or um, the, the attainment of education, no matter um, no matter um, what social standing you are at, or no matter if you are um, a boy or a girl. And uh, this accessibility is made by um, the charity of our community, Humanity First, and the charity um, subsidiary um, is called Knowledge First. And uh, what Knowledge First have done has is they've they've created schools in over thirty four countries. <coughs> Pardon me, such as um, in Tanzania, Haiti, and Guatemala. So in these developing countries, in these in, in the developing world, Knowledge First has um, built these schools. So this is integral in breaking these social classes and uh, trying to promote um, um, a more or less escape from these. Uh, these chains that we have with in, in terms of social barriers because we see even in in the UK those people who are uh, living in poverty or are living in um, less um, privileged households they are more likely to, um, to 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 be part of this cycle continuously and this is is literally a cycle um, so education is something that can break these cycles and Hazur has highlighted that as well absolutely and I think with that uh, we can close uh, this uh, segment uh, we do hope you that you've enjoyed the show and uh, we wanted to take this time out to firstly thank the producer Maliha Abdullah for her uh, hard work and also to the team uh, Kutsi Award Hala and Samarine for their hard work so thank you to um, thank you to our uh, producer as well for the to the production team as well for such a great show uh, we also wanted to thank uh, Sabiha Iqbal uh, for joining us this morning uh, for segment one and also Miss Philomena Clifford, an active member of the Baha'i Faith. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And also lastly, Dr. Jennifer uh, Driscoll, <coughs> who is a program director and she came on for the second segment. So spoke very well so thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, lastly we wanted to also thank the tech team for their hard work in the background thank you to you guys and also uh, lastly to the listeners uh, we do hope that you've enjoyed the show this morning um, and uh, do give us your feedback you can uh, call us on 0286877878 or you can tweet to us at voice of islam uk um, let us know what your thoughts are of the show or if there is any pressing topic that you think that we should cover on The Voice of Islam that we've not covered before 
do let us know um, and we will take that into consideration. And remember, you can go on our website for more information on www.voiceofislam.co.uk. So until next time, it's uh, Asalaamu Alaikum from both of us here in the studio of Voice of Islam. <laughs>